Good morning. Doing good, everybody? Good morning. I'm starting to get excited about Christmas. I don't know if you all are feeling that way. Uh, one thing I'm particularly excited about as I see some parents here in first service is the uh, kids' Christmas choir uh, that we're doing. So we're having our Christmas Eve service. This year, Sunday morning um, is the 24th, right? So the 24th is Christmas Eve. So we're having our Christmas Eve morning service. That's like a regular worship service where you come and gather. But then we're having our Christmas Eve Eve service, which is a different kind of service. It's not a sermon. It's not like the Sunday morning service. It's um, we're singing a lot and we're going to sing Christmas songs and we're going to have our candle uh, light ceremony and and celebrate Advent. And we're going to have the kids sing uh, the Christmas songs that they're practicing in kids ministry. So make sure parents that you're signing up for that and that your kids are not missing out, all right? Um, so don't go out of town. Change your travel plans right now so you can be here for that. Um, anyway, so this morning, uh, the title of the message is Paul's Hair and Other Lessons. Um, and really, it is a fitting sermon title for this passage. You might think we're just trying to be funny or goofy, and I mean, it is funny, um, but you know, I guess we could have avoided that and been more serious with the title, but actually Paul's hair is mentioned in the passage this morning. And I would argue that it's mentioned very deliberately by Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, um, so that we will think about it and think about what's being communicated by that. And so... um, that's what we're going to do this morning, and that's why I wanted to go ahead and just make it the title, Paul's Hair. Uh, there were different options that I had for titles, different variations of Paul's hair. Um, so anyways, here we go. Uh, we're going to look, though, at four discipleship lessons from Paul. Four discipleship lessons from Paul. And I think I just want to define what it is to be a disciple very quickly. What is a disciple? We toss words around in church sometimes, and what does that word mean? It means a follower. It means a a learner. It means a student. Have you ever taken a class? Have you signed up for classes before, you know, registered, and you're like, that's my professor? That's a disciple. One who is learning from another, an apprentice, an adherent, a pupil, a follower. That's a disciple. And Jesus in the gospels, he says to his disciples, he says, come and what is it? Follow me. We are to be followers of Jesus. But Jesus also says to his disciples, put yourself in their shoes. So you're following him because he said, come and follow me. But then he also says to them, put yourself in their shoes, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So we are to be disciples. And we are to be in some way engaged in discipling others. Paul did this. Not because he was special, but because he was a Christian. But Paul did this. He was a disciple and he helped make disciples. In fact, we're looking at his time in Corinth last week and a little bit more today. But Paul would later write, to the Corinthians, two letters, first and second Corinthians. We'll quote those books a couple of times today. But in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he would say this to them. Look at it, it'll be on the screen. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
That is to be a disciple who is making disciples. All right? And so this morning, our hope is to do just that, to learn some discipleship lessons from Paul, to follow him, but really to follow Jesus. So let's uh, read the passage. It's going to be Acts 18, Acts 18, um, verse 12 through verse 23. Now, I just want to say, this is one of those passages. You're going to notice this as we read this. This is one of those passages that almost feels like, you know, insignificant. Like, okay, this is just an in-between passage. It's not one of the great passages like Paul in Athens at Mars Hill or Paul even last week in Corinth or what's coming up next with Paul in Ephesus. It just feels very in-between. And that would be right, it is. But I want to challenge you. It, in times in my life, I've come to passages of Scripture and thought, yeah, I don't know if there's much here. And then God has just rocked my world. And I wonder if it might be that way a little bit today. I'm not saying it has to be, but I'm just saying there's some pretty profound truth in what we might overlook and go too fast by in this passage. So that's a good preface for this. Now, verse 12. Um, Here we go. I'm going to read and then pray. So verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they seized, or they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Achilla. At Cincrea, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray briefly. God, we lift up our time in the Word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from Acts 18 this morning. Lord, in this place, as we're gathered as Fellowship Raleigh Church for this worship gathering, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work among us. And God, we also stretch further out and we pray for others, Lord, for others worshiping you this morning, for churches in Raleigh. For churches in our country, God, we lift up 
Lord, the church of Jesus Christ globally. And God, we pray for the work of the gospel around the world. Lord, we pray for what's going on in the Middle East. We do pray, Lord, for resolution, for peace, for advancement of the kingdom of God, of the gospel. Lord, we ask for your help this morning in all that we're doing in our lives, but particularly now as we look at this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So four discipleship lessons from Paul. Are you ready? Here's the first one. It is faith in action. Faith in action. And this comes from the first big section here, verses 12 through verses 17. Now, let me just set the stage here because if you weren't here last week, you might not have the full picture, okay? So in verses 9 and 10, Jesus himself made a promise. If you have a Bible with red letters, you'll see it there in verses 9 and 10. Jesus himself made a promise to Paul that he's going to be with him. He said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. No one's going to attack you and be able to harm you. This was a special promise to Paul for this time in Corinth. And it says that in verse 11 that he stayed there for 18 months and there were many people who came to the Lord. And so that's the context that we're in here. Now, in verse 11, um, it, again, it says that he was there for a year and six months. So now in verse 12, we see that they actually are trying to harm Paul. And so if you're tracking and you were just thinking about the promise that Jesus made to Paul, you might think in verse 12, oh, okay, that's about to get tested. So verse 12 says, when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And so just so you know, that word Achaia, that is one of the Roman provinces during the time of Paul. You recall when Paul came to Greece, he saw the vision of the Macedonian man. That's another province, Macedonia. Now he's coming to this or he's in this province where Corinth is. I believe we have a map where Achaia is. These are the Roman provinces. All right. And so he comes, it says in verse 12, before this guy named Galileo. Now, Galileo is the brother of someone actually very famous. History books tell us this. It's not in the Bible, but um, he's the brother of a Stoic philosopher named Seneca. And, and basically, I just say that only to say he, he was famous. Like, he was like a Kennedy. All right? He, he, he was an import, from an important sort of political, sort of famous family at that time, this guy, Galileo. He was serving as the proconsul in Corinth. They were two-year terms, and so he was there for two years. We know it was 52 AD at this time when this is happening because of the records of the Roman Empire and the proconsul. So that's Galileo. He's there, and it says he's at the tribunal. Do you see that word there? Tribunal. Now, that word is translated in the New American Standard as the judgment seat. It's also translated in the New International Version as the place of judgment. The reason I say that is what what just, I mean, it all means the same thing. The idea is that Paul was brought to court. He was brought before 
the place where the proconsul sat on an elevated stage, if you will, in a chair, judging cases that were brought before him. So in our modern day terms, you might say brought to court or in front of the bench of the court. That's where Paul was. In fact, if you go to ancient Corinth, which I have, you can see the bema seat. Bema is the Greek word for the judgment seat or the tribunal. The bema seat is what it's called. You can see it there in ancient Corinth. It's not so much a seat as it was a huge platform like a stage where there would be a seat on top. But the next slide shows up closer. and You can see right there where they sort of like, you know, put a label for those of us that need it. And um, but those are just pictures. You can go there and take them on an iPhone like I did. So that is a place. And that's where they are at this moment. It's interesting because in 2 Corinthians, one of the letters that Paul wrote back to the Corinthians, he says this. Watch this. This is amazing. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's using that same word, the bema seat. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So it just, all the dots are connecting. So now, before we keep moving into this point of faith in action, I just want to observe just a little side note about this Galileo guy. And what I want to say is this. It's really looking at the subject of influence and popularity. We may try in our own ways, to sort of make our mark on life, make our mark on history, you know? And yet all our efforts may be fleeting in the end. And I just think as you step back from some of these passages in the Bible and you observe God's great sovereignty and his great providence and that he's the grand weaver, he's the master redemptive storyteller, you notice how the story of God is told by God and the main characters and the key moments that are of most eternal significance are up to his sovereignty and not our efforts. Galileo was from a famous family. He was a Kennedy. This encounter, as we just read it, seemed honestly to annoy him. He could not get away from it faster. A little skirmish of the Jews that he was being asked to mediate about. But little did he know, this was his 15 minutes of fame. This moment that he deemed pointless would turn out to be the most historically and eternally significant moment that his life would ever touch. I just think there's a lesson for us in that. About the fleetingness of fame and popularity and the masterfulness of God as he writes his story. Back to our main point here, which is four discipleship lessons from Paul, the first one being faith in action. Here's the big point. You know, Paul put his faith into action. You say, why why do you say that, Matt? Well, again, Jesus made a promise to Paul that he'd be with him, that he'd protect him, that he could go on speaking, not be silent, and stay put in Corinth. 
Did Paul do it? We know that he did. Did he hedge his bets? Did he try to sort of protect himself by sort of tiptoeing around policies and being careful and all this? Did he do that? Well, maybe a little, but what we know is this. Paul put faith in that promise from Jesus so much into action that they did try to harm him. But God protected him. They tried to arrest him here, but God kept his promise to Paul. Sometimes, here's the point, sometimes we are so cautious, we leave the promise of God to protect us completely unclaimed and unnecessary. I used to uh, work at a summer camp and I would work at the rock climbing tower. And so I would help kids put their harness on and I would be the guy belaying them, like holding the other side of the rope as they would go up the rock climbing tower. And I would check the harness and show them, hold them by it, show them you're, you're secure. And then I would talk about, you know, all the, the, the ways that we need to go about this. I'm going to say, you know, on belay, you're going to say belay on all this stuff. And then they would um, start climbing. And I would tell them, you don't need to hold the rope. It's going to be such a distraction if you hold the rope. You're trying to climb up the rock climbing wall. Don't hold the rope. The harness has got you. I've got you. Don't be cautious. Go for it. Climb. And when you're done, just jump back off the wall. I've got you. And time and time again, especially with younger kids, but with lots of people, that just can't get there. Just, yeah, just not sure I trust you that you're really with me, that you've really got me. And I think sometimes we live that way with the promises of God. We know them. We know them in our heads. We, we like them. We put them on social media. You know, we, we're into them. But we don't live in such a way that if they're not true, We'll be embarrassed. We'll get hurt. And, you know, I, I, yesterday I went to Starbucks with my daughters. And I go to Starbucks a lot for work, and I do it a lot. And I don't know much about it. I don't love Starbucks at all. But it's a good place to have a meeting. And so, you know, I have the app. And I have no idea how many stars I have. I'm not really aware of Starbucks stars. But my kids are very aware of it. And... And I, so I go, and they're like, why don't you check your stars? And I'm like, well, I don't even know how to do it. And lo and behold, I had enough unclaimed stars to pretty much buy the whole restaurant. <laughs> and, and I did. A lot of us as Christians, though, we often are living with unclaimed Promises from God. God promises to be present with us, to protect us when we walk by faith, when we let others know that we are Christians and tell them about Jesus. And so instead of drawing on that promise of God's protection, we sometimes leave it untouched through being sort of covert and reserved and fearful. And we miss out on the thrilling adventure of seeing God be faithful to his promises. 
as Paul experienced here. And so faith in action is the first lesson from Paul. And the next lesson from verse 18 is freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ. This is where we get into Paul's hair. Freedom in Christ. So it says after this, so after everything happened with Galileo and him just dismissing the case. In fact, no, I want to go back, but yeah, we're just moving on to point two. So after this happened, it says in verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with them Priscilla and Achilla, that's his tent-making business partners. And then it says, at Cancrea, that's just the, um, that's the port at Corinth. So he's get, about to get on a ship. So right before he gets on the ship, it says he had cut his hair. Now, if you know like about the Bible, that, the Bible's not going to include a detail like someone getting a haircut, unless it's like something that we're supposed to think about, at least for a little bit. He got a haircut. I mean, you tell me, how many places in Scripture are, are haircuts mentioned? Um, there are some, and we might be about to talk about one. But, um, yeah, so he gets his haircut. And he says the reason is that he was under a vow. Why? Well, well what most people believe, and I think this is absolutely accurate, is that this was a Nazarite vow. Because if you look in the Old Testament, if you were to turn, and you can turn later to Numbers in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 1 through 21, it details sort of the game plan for taking on the vow of the Nazarite. And you might think of another person in Scripture, um, Samson. In the book of Judges, in chapter 13, it says he was a Nazarite from birth. And so he didn't take a vow of a Nazarite. He was supposed to be a Nazarite his whole life and never get his hair cut. That's a different situation. But the vow of a Nazarite is for any person who is part of God's family to participate in. And Numbers 1 through 6 spells it out. Let me just tell you what it is real quick. It means that a person is to separate himself to the Lord for a season of time. They're not to have any wine during the time that they are a under the Nazarite vow. They are not to attend any funerals. They're not to be around a dead body. It actually says in number six that even if a family member were to pass away, if you're under the Nazarite vow, it's so important that you have said, I'm setting myself apart to the Lord during this time. You can't attend the funeral. It's kind of crazy. It's very radical. And there is um, the way that it begins is with a haircut. You shave your head. And then the way that it ends is with another haircut. And then you are to take your hair that you cut off at the end, and you are to go to the temple in Jerusalem, and you are to make a, a worshipful offering to the Lord to complete your Nazarite vow. All right, And part of that offering is stuff that you are making offerings with like grain and these types of things, but also the hair that you just cut off. You're supposed to burn it up. So that's the Nazarite vow. So let me explain this to you. I've got some hair here. Um, and, uh, it, you know, you need the object lesson to sometimes get the full point that we are making. So because I was really thinking about this, 
I, it's really amazing how this would have happened and gone down. It's actually kind of brilliant in a way. So just imagine that you're Paul, all right? So you're Paul, you're in Corinth, and, and, geez, and, you're, and you're just doing your thing, right? You got your hair. I know this is silly. It's the only wig I had. And you're doing your thing, and Jesus makes this promise to you in verse 9 through 10 that no one is going to hurt you, that you can continue being bold. And, and you think, man, that's really special. That's really special that Jesus spoke to me and made that promise to me. And so then you're like, all right, I'm, I'm taking a Nazarite vow. I, that is so special. I'm taking a Nazarite vow, setting myself apart to the Lord. And so as Paul, you shave your head, right? So now you're here. And that's, by the way, I'm always under a Nazarite vow. So you shave your head and, and then you go through the period of time. So no wine, no funerals. You go through that period of time. And then you, you get to this point where they're in front of the proconsul. This is how I think it happened. In front of the proconsul, and Galileo's there, and Paul's about to speak to defend himself. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 12 through 17. He's about to defend himself, and Galileo cuts him off and dismisses the whole case. And it's almost like, you can imagine Paul just being like, you know, rubbing his head like, man, I wasn't even able to speak up to defend myself. God kept his promise. He protected me. It's amazing. And he's like, you know what? It's a, by this time, by the way, his hair would have grown back some. So he's got his hair grown back. Because your hair grows back during the time of the Nazarite vow. You cut it at the beginning. So his hair's grown back, but now it's like holy hair. It's like the Nazarite vow hair. It's the hair that you're going to offer at the temple. And so he's like, man, I think it's time for me to go to Jerusalem and, and go ahead and make this offering to just praise God for how he's watched over me during this time. And so he's like, let, let me go to Kincrea. I'm going to get on a ship. I'm going to go head toward Jerusalem. So he goes there. He goes into a barbershop. They cut the hair off. He's bald again. He puts it in a bag, and he's, he's about to take it to Jerusalem. All right. Now, here's what I think is amazing about this whole thing. It's just really interesting. This it's like when you, when you go to make your offering in Jerusalem, you, like, you can't lie. You know what I mean? Like, like, there's probably somebody that comes up there. They're like, I'm here to show that I completed a Nazarite vow. And they got like a little thing of hair. It's like, what is it? Did you like pull that out of a hairbrush? Like, what did you do? Like a one hour Nazarite vow? And then there's someone who's like comes in there and they like drag in like a long thing of hair in. They're like, that's right. It was a hundred day Nazarite vow. Here's all the hair. This is how amazing the God is and how great it was to worship him during this time. All right, so that's the whole story about that. We'll put that there. Um, but uh, here's the point. The point is freedom in Christ. You say, why is that the point, Matt? Here's the reason. Paul used to be a Pharisee. He was a Jewish Pharisee. Now he's a Christian. He is totally free from the law. However, he did not throw away his identity, his culture as a Jew. He still embraced parts of it. That's what we see here. He's like, you know what? I just want to worship God in a way. And he does the Nazarite vow from number six. He was free not to participate in things like that. 
But he was also free to participate in things like that if it would help him worship God in his walk with the Lord or, better yet, help him reach others for Christ. You know, he, sa- he says in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. You might say, oh, like when you did the Nazarite vow. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Freedom in Christ. Free not to observe the law. Free to observe the law if it helps him worship or if it helps him reach others. Be free in Christ. Be yourself in Christ. Be your culture in Christ. Be your personality in Christ. Be whoever you need to be to be the best witness for Christ to those who have not yet come to Christ. Freedom in Christ. Faith in action, freedom in Christ. Four discipleship lessons. Now, number three, seasons of consecration. Seasons of consecration. Verse 18, again, through verse 21. Let me read it to you. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Achilla. At Cancrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. We got that. Now verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Isn't that weird? Normally he gets kicked out of synagogues. But he wants to be there, and you would think he would want to be in Ephesus. That's the greatest city he's arrived at yet. But he's like, I got to go. I can't. I got to go. Look at verse 21. On taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. What's going on here? Paul came to Ephesus. He sailed there. Priscilla and Achilla stayed put. They probably set up shop for the tent making. Paul was determined to get to Jerusalem. Why? The vow. Also probably to check in with the Christians there, but he wanted to fulfill this season of consecration that he had dedicated himself to. He wanted eagerly to complete it. It was meaningful to him to worship in Jerusalem and to finish up the Nazarite vow that he had begun and to give praise to Jesus for keeping his promise and protection in Corinth. It was a season of consecration in Paul's life. And I think that's a lesson that we can learn from Paul right here. We can ask ourselves as disciples of Jesus, do we have seasons like that? Do we have seasons of special consecration to the Lord? You say, well, that's just for the Old Testament. Ooh, Paul's doing it here in the New Testament. I worry at times about me, all right? This is for me as much as anyone. I worry in churches like ours that we do not engage in special seasons of consecration to the Lord. That we've got our theology right, And we live in our heads. 
that we're just doing books, podcasts, and YouTube, but we're not being consecrated to the Lord. We might need to get off the Gospel Coalition blog and get into the Desert Fathers. We might need to get, you know, put John Calvin and Starbucks away and get with John the Baptist in the wilderness eating locusts. No urgency about our baptism, casual about communion, no just because worship times that are sacrificial. No hunger and desperation for God through fasting and prayer. I'm just saying, I'm saying it to me. Seasons of consecration is a lesson that we can learn from Paul here as he follows Christ. Four discipleship lessons from Paul. Fourth one is this, and the last one. Anchored in community. Anchored in community. So look at verses 22 and 23. When he had landed at Caesarea, this is back over near in Israel, near Jerusalem and all that, he went up and greeted the church. Now, stop. You see where it says he went up? Anytime you're in Israel and you go up, where are you going? To Jerusalem, to Zion. So don't miss that. He went up and greeted the church. He went to Jerusalem with his hair, and he completed his vow. And he greeted the church, which is even more important. He greeted the church. And then he went down, which actually is north, but because we're talking Jerusalem going up to the Holy Hill to Zion, he went down, which is north, to Antioch. Verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Lessons from Paul on discipleship. Here's what we see here. The tendency in this life, the tendency of our own human hearts, and be honest, it's true for you too, is to isolate, to be individualistic in our approach of really everything, but sometimes especially things of God. It happens in every Christian's life, in every church, And the point I think we are to see in these verses is that Paul was no Lone Ranger Christian. If anyone could give a reason not to be anchored with other believers, it would be the Apostle Paul. However, Luke stops the flow of Acts entirely to show us that Paul is a guy who goes back to Jerusalem, who visits Antioch, who goes into the region of Galatia again to connect, to be in community with these believers. These are places he's already been. He was anchored in community. Paul was. And that is a lesson for us too. So as we conclude, I want to bring one more thing to our attention Again, the lessons are faith in action, freedom in Christ, seasons of consecration, anchored in community. But we went really quickly past one little point, and I want to draw your attention to it in uh, slides, guys. If you could go back uh, to verse 16 and 17, it would be helpful. 
What happened to Sosthenes? We went a little fast on that. Verse 16, Gallio drove them from the tribunal. Do you see that? And the angry mob, here's what they did. Verse 17, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Okay. Um, We don't know much about Sosthenes, except that in the very first letter that Paul writes back to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1. Let me show it to you. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So we don't know much about him. Was he a Christian already by by this time in Acts 18? Was he not yet? Did this cause him to become a Christian? We don't know. Man, this is very gospel-like. Hello? Paul goes free. Another takes his punishment unjustly. And so as we come in our own personal world before the judgment seat of God, If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, you know that you go free because a greater Sosthenes took a punishment that was for you. And so Sosthenes eventually becomes a follower of Christ. With him and with Paul, let's follow the Lord Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's follow the one who died for us that we might go free. Let's trust God with faith and action to the point of taking up our own cross that others may know this wonderful Savior who keeps his promises who's with us, who protects us. Bow with me.